Welcome back, everybody. It's implicitly awkward here. I am one of your hosts, Alexia. I'm your other host, Marcus. And today we have a super special guest, Dr. Jody Armour on of USC Law. Yes, he's got a new book out that we're going to talk about. Uh, we're talking about respectability politics. Uh, we're talking about empathy. Yeah, it's like a pretty good conversation. I, I feel like I got a lot out of it. Alexia, I feel like you got some out of it too. Yeah, there was a lot of great knowledge drops. We're also talking about equity and education, yeah. a lot of great gems. So you definitely want to stick around. Yeah, he's a storyteller for sure. So get ready, strap in. Ready? Let's do it. All right, welcome back. We are implicitly awkward, and this week we have a very special guest in the building. Um, uh, critical race theorist. Um, he just dropped a book called Nigga Theory, and it's great. Um, and a USC law professor, uh, Dr. Joni Armour. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I I'm really appreciate you having me, and look forward to our conversation. Um, so again. Uh, just dropped a book called Nigga Theory. And, you know, we had, an, I was a part of a, a talk that you had about the book um, a couple weeks ago. And like, basically the whole book is like a, a middle finger towards like um, that whole idea that we have to be somebody in somebody else's eyes in order to get forward, especially like black people going into white spaces, um, like it's a it's like talking about respectability politics in a way that like um i don't know it's like we needed to have that conversation about like how terrible it is and how like the depths of like how bad and like how detrimental uh respectability politics can be towards people um, yeah i think it's it's absolutely been destructive to the black community respectability politics seem to serve us well in the civil rights era when we were arguing for integrated lunch counters, integrated hotels, public accommodations, a lot of times people in that movement would put so-called good Negroes up front as the face of the movement right. so that Americans would say, oh, we shouldn't be treating these upright good Negroes so badly. So that's where the politics of respectability got its traction initially. But what you saw with the Black Lives Matter movement is a rejection of respectability politics, because what you saw in case after case in which there was a hashtag that arose because police shot some unarmed black man or woman, right, or caused their death, whether it's Sandra Bland or Eric Garner or Walter Scott or said, uh, you know, Philando Castile, whoever it was, what you saw them doing, even Trayvon Martin, one of the first things uh, defenders of the police and killers of black people would start doing is putting the black victim on trial and saying, oh, that black victim wasn't morally immaculate. What yeah. was Eric Garner doing selling those Lucy's after all, you right. know? 
why didn't Walter Scott pay his child support payments? Why, you know, what's up mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, right? he's no and angel. So, when, when they call uh, Mike Brown, they said he's no angel. Yes, yes, right. So they started putting the uh, our, our our black youth and black victims on trial. You know, putting their character on trial and 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 saying only if you were a respectable Negro could you expect to be treated properly by the police. And Black Lives Matter rejected that, of course, and said, no, you should not have to be Dudley damn do-right to deserve to be respected and treated with some kind of basic human decency by, you know, the violence workers that we hire to police our streets, because that's what police are, violence workers. We give them a loaded gun with ammunition, often hollow tip bullets, we give them a stun gun, mace, a billy club, handcuffs. They're violence workers, right? And so we have to. That, that's kind of where a lot of uh, where a lot of the, the 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 book is getting its spirit. The spirit of Black Lives Matter that said we reject respectability politics. Um, yeah, and I feel like it's again, you know, when growing up, you there's like a certain amount of like professionalism that you have to learn and like you have to like hold on to um and just wondering I've always wondered about like how professionalism like respectability politics kind of go hand in hand sometimes like like you have to look a certain way you have to cut your hair a certain way you have to dress a certain way because if you don't you're not going to get anywhere in life blah 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 and like I don't know like well there's certainly some types of uh there's some merit to that right um like you can't you can't show up to a, a job interview like like un unshowered, right? Sure. Right. That being said, um, I feel like sometimes it's kind of like a high level conversation to like understand like how high that goes and how deep all that goes. And I feel like part of the reason why we started this podcast is like we're trying to make these type of high level conversations more accessible to people. Um, like sometimes it feels like it's it's like, it's going to go over a lot of people's heads. Like I can't have this same conversation with like certain members of my family. Right. Just because like that, that, that part, they're not going to, they just, they're just not going to get that far, you know? Um, So I guess a question for you, I was wondering like, how do we make conversations about like any of this stuff, whether it's like racism, sexism, like equity, any of this, how do we make it more accessible for people, for like people who like, like the, the common man, you know, like as layman's terms as we can possibly get, because I feel like those are the people that, if and you know I might be speculating here, but I feel like those are the people that we have to reach for any of this to like, you know, to go forward. Absolutely, I I, I agree with you 100%. And that's the challenge for us as students, as scholars, as academics, right? Those of us who are involved in any kind of university, SC community, for example. What you're dedicated to is the search for truth and justice. Right, that's what uh, above all goes on in the and the should be going on in these departments on campus. And as part of your search for you know those very things, uh, truth and justice, you're going to have to confront some of your own biases. You're going to have to confront some of your own prejudices. You're going to have to think hard about things like you started out with. How much do we require people to look professional and respectable? You know, when they when they go out into the world, a lot of people, 
on this podcast, many of your uh, people who are listening won't see me, but I have an Afro um, and I used to have a long beard as well. And I only got those about four years ago when I was writing this book, you know, a nigger theory, race, uh, language, unequal justice in the law. I sat down to write it on my sabbatical and took it took nine months. I was on my sabbatical for nine months in that nine month period. When I'm writing, I go into no air, food or water zone. You know, I go in, I, I, I just lock myself up. My kids used to say, because they knew how I was when I went into writing mode, cemetery silence, dad and one cemetery silence. Cause I used to tell them cemetery silence for writing purposes, right? Which meant I missed nine months of trips to the barbershop here architects right around the corner from me. So when I went back to school nine months later and started teaching criminal law, I had a little bit of a fro, a little bit of a beard, but not that much, you know, nine months, you know, but a little bit with, with that little, fro and beard when i went back to and started teaching criminal law i overheard my students say and then some of my other students reported to me the students were saying it's ironic that's the word they use it's ironic that professor armor teaches criminal law while he looks like a criminal right and then i went downtown and started talking to some downtown attorneys about commercial transactions and by the time i got back to the law school some of those attorneys had called some of my colleagues and reported that Professor Armour's appearance is, quote, impertinent and unprofessional, right? Impertinent. Oh, okay. Imper unprofessional. So that, that was when I was able to say, thanks to this thing called tenure, thanks to this lovely institution called tenure, you know, I was able to say, grow, baby, grow. You know, there was a time, if you'd seen me a, a year or two ago, you know, I had a lot more hair, you know, I, I, I look like Dumbledore you know, with the beard, I went all the way because for me at that point, it wasn't just about, you know, uh, a celebration of the African-American soul, which is kind of one of the things that black hair can be about, Afros or dreads or whatever, whatever the crown that black folks decide to embrace, you know, happens to be. It's not only a celebration of the African-American soul, but for me at that point, it became a bat signal of solidarity with Black Lives Matter. You know, I started using follicle fashion as a symbolic statement, you know, as part of a political communication. And uh, so, yeah, but to do that, to get to that, I had to turn my back on a certain politics of respectability approach to things that would say, oh, why don't you just, you know, get a comb and do something with that hair, trim down that hair, trim, get rid of that beard, you know, that sort of thing. And the reason it's futile to try to embrace that politics and respectability approach is, um, is the third story I'll tell you about what happened when I, you know, let my fro grow and, and, and got a little bit of a beard. I went down to JW Marriott, downtown LA, you know, the big JW Marriott down there next to the Ritz. My home, my roommate from A Better Chance, a program I was in that takes inner city kids out of the inner city and puts them in boarding school so they have a better chance to go to college. I was a member of a Better Chance program. My roommate from those days was up in LA, Lino Garcia. He was the new general manager of ESPN Deportes. We were hanging out in, at JW Marriott. After we hung out, I called uh, for an Uber. While I was waiting, three guards approached me. All right, they sent the black one over, the two white ones stood back. The black one walks up to me and he says, sir, are you here to see someone? 
I said, well, yes, I am, but why aren't you asking anyone else in the lobby? There were a hundred other people in the lobby. It was a big lobby, right? And I was dressed like I am with you now. I had on a button-up shirt, a jacket, a sports jacket, regular slacks, and hard shoes. That I looked, I was, you know, sport, casual, um, like you, like I wear to class when I'm teaching torts or, or criminal law. Um, he said, he said, uh, he's here to see someone. I said, uh, yes, but why didn't you ask anyone else? He said, well, sir, we've been having a problem with transients, right? I.e. houseless people, right? He said, we've been having a problem with transients. So what he was implying was abundantly clear, but I wanted to actually hear him say it. So I asked him, All right, so you're saying I look like a transient? And he said, sir, don't take it personally. Then he walked how? away. Oh, okay. Hey, no, the, 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 the black one, right? He walked away, joined the other two. At that point, the nice thing about working in some place like USC for 20 years plus as a, as a law school is a lot of your students are out now practicing law. So I called one of them at one of the big law firms downtown, Latham Watkins, at that very moment. And I started tweeting about this incident at the very moment. So you can go back and find this incident in my tweets. I said, this just happened, but I know they're not going to come back. But just in case they come back, I want you to be on the phone, my former student at, at Latham Watkins. And I was tweeting about, it, like I said, at that moment. But I, I was sure they weren't going to come back. They came back. About a minute and a half later, they came back. This time, all three of them close bunched up together. And they said, sir, the black one again says, sir, what is the name of the guest you came here to see? Now, as a tort and criminal law professor, I can characterize that transaction for you legally. What they were saying legally was, if I didn't give them the name of a guest they could find in their JW Marriott database, I'd assume the ejectable status of a trespasser. And they were about to lay hands on me and throw me out of that lobby. And so what I was presented with a choice that Black people were presented with hundreds of thousands of times a day in America. This was the choice I was presented with. And I only had two choices that, that I was confronted with. One, I give them Lino Garcia's name. I, can, I ratify their stereotypes about me, their stereotype perceptions of me. I validate their misperceptions of me. I, I swallow that indignity, right? Which is more than just a microaggression. It feels like a spirit murder you know, where I confirm that, oh, yeah, I can understand why you might mistake me for a houseless person just standing here in my own black skin, right, in a sports jacket. Now, either, either I do that, I, I swallow that indignity, suffer that spirit murder, or the only other option there is to tell him to go fuck himself, right? That's the only other option. Now, with that option, I wind up in the back of a squad car, I'm going downtown, you know, it's on the 6 and 11 o'clock news, and I'm probably not talking to you because, you know, now, you know, they're not, they can't mess with you much with tenure, but one thing they can mess with you on is felonies, you know, assault felonies. Right. Right. So that was the choice to pick your poison as a black person in America. Which, which spirit murder are you going to suffer? Because you got to suffer one. That's your only choice, right? And so that is what I wrote, you know, my, some of what I'm trying to get at in my book. And that is the everyday reality of Black folk. And notice what I tried to do, man, when I was breaking that down was talk to you about discrimination in a way that an ordinary person could understand, right? I did no fancy theories because that's how you started out the question, right? How do you break things down 
so that ordinary folk can apply their common sense to these social and racial justice issues and get it and know what you're talking about. I think I tried to just give you an example of how I at least try to go about it. You know, I lay out true and simple and clear narratives that make certain points, you know, and then we can go on to the next one and the next and the next. So what I'm kind of gathering with this um, in terms of respectability politics, and I also really like the phrase that you use in an interview with um, Ice Cube, the Boulevard to the Academy, and thinking about how respectability politics also play in terms of like one's own appearance. Like for myself, I would not wear hoops when I was younger because then I look too Latina, I look a certain way, X, Y, Z. So I feel like it is so powerful if you're in these positions, even in academia, professionally, right? Like you think about every single layer because it is political. It is, you're making a statement. And I feel like that in a way, right? One is like the language we use and code switching and then also how we look. And I feel like making conversations more accessible is one, right? Seeing someone that represents you. And two, how do we like engage people, right? Because we're using high level language that we learn to use because we need to get ahead. Um, so that's always something that we kind of go back and forth with of like on this podcast, how do we make it more accessible? And we like confront ourselves with our privileges, right? We're at USC, we're in this type of academia. Um, but at the same time, like we want to create equity. We want to have these conversations. So it's always just this like balance back and forth. Great. Let me give you another example of how I would make an idea that is normally very complex and difficult, a little more easy to um, digest and get a handle on by just, you know, everyday folk, you know, you don't have to have any special black background. You know, you don't have to get in any, any fancy vocabulary, but you can really get this essential point. Right now, we're in the middle of a major revolution in consciousness when it comes to crime and punishment issues, right? We elected a progressive prosecutor, George Gascon, in L.A. County, replacing Jackie Lacey, a traditional law and order prosecutor. Um, we, have me we passed Measure J, which takes 10% of the county budget up to a billion dollars a year and dedicates it to incarceration alternatives, basically a defund the police measure. So we really are in, uh, in the middle of a, a, a just really jaw-dropping uh, shift in how the public thinks about blame and punishment because they've been made aware of racialized mass incarceration and the fact that it's a kind of... You were, you were saying you were gonna give us another example of how- Yeah, I was gonna give you another example of how you can take a complex subject and reduce it to something that is more um, just visceral and, and makes common sense, it, you know, uh, people can relate to in a, um, in a very personal and direct way, even though it's really a subtle and complex issue. What I'm thinking about is the shift over the last 10 years and how we think about blame and punishment. You know, we've gone from um, approaching blame and punishment matters um, on the basis of retribution, retaliation, and revenge. That was our moral framework, our moral compass for 40, 50 years to in the last five, six, seven years, we've elected a number of progressive prosecutors 
and who promised that they will pursue a, a conception of justice that is rooted in restoration, rehabilitation, and redemption, right? And that's very different than retribution, retaliation, and revenge, a totally different moral framework. But a lot of people in making that shift, and it's, an, it's a, a critical one, it's the most important civil rights issue that we're confronting today. Michelle Alexander made that point well in her 2000 book, The New Jim Crow, and it's no less true in 2021 than in 2010. I'm sorry, in 2010, her, her a New Jim Crow book was released. She's made it then in 2010. It's no less true now than it was in 2010. And so to get at this issue of racialized mass incarceration in The New Jim Crow, we're going to have to adopt a totally new moral framework. And a lot of people find that very uncomfortable. You know, a lot of us want, we, we find a certain amount of gratification in retribution, retaliation, revenge. You know, if, for example, um, um, when Bossom John, when Bossom John, the, uh, the black uh, young man, 26 in Dallas, was shot by a white Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger, who opened the door to his apartment. He was sitting down eating a bowl of ice cream and watching TV, and she shot him once in the chest and killed him, right? And a lot of people in my mentions, on my timeline, in the forums I was entering, were very upset at me. I lost a good number of followers behind my statement that we should not necessarily seek murder criminal liability against her first and foremost, because she did something that was really stupid. She got off on the wrong floor. So when she got to the door, she thought it was her door, but it was, the, it was Botham John's door. Okay, that was a stupid mistake, right? We can say it's a stupid mistake, but stupid mistakes are usually criminal negligence or even criminal recklessness. That's manslaughter, not murder. When we start saying we only murder, 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 we insist on a murder conviction. We want retribution, retaliation, and revenge. Forget about any, anything else other than that. When we start saying that for when it comes to violent offenders like Amber Geiger, we're really saying that also about a whole lot of black folk who are caught up in the criminal justice system. We're reinforcing a moral framework that's gonna make it harder for us to make deep cuts in mass incarceration because so many black people who are victims of the new Jim Crow are in prison because they have committed violent crime. So unless we can start thinking about violent criminals very differently, you know, including when it comes to tough cases where people that we don't particularly have a lot of sympathy for, like white police officers who are shooting unarmed black people yet again. You know, I know the rage that brings to us, right? And rightly, I, I felt the rage too, but and we, uh, those are the times we have to really dig in and say, what is in the long-term best interest of our people? And so when, you, when I'm saying that to folks, you know, you'll hear a lot of black folks as well as non-black folks say, I don't know about that. You know, I, I'm, I'm from the old school retribution, with the eye for an eye. You know, I don't know about that. You know, um, uh, how can you, you, you get, you know, you have victims and you have victimizers and you have good Negroes and you got bad Negroes. I don't know about that. I don't want to hear it, right? And then I have to, way I'll try to get convey to them what I'm talking about at that point would be and has been to take them to San Quentin with me. I take my students to San Quentin, my USC students to San Quentin, and we sat down through the years 
as part of a program called No More Tears. And No More Tears brings mothers of murder victims together with lifers, people there, life without parole, lifers who are there for murders, typically, right? Mothers of murder victims and, and people who've committed murders. And my students sit down and I with them and over a, a course of a day. And here's how a typical um, session would go. Um, the mother of, one of, of a murder victim would stand up and say, this is my beloved. This is my son, daughter, husband, loved one, who was ripped from me by violence, tore apart our family. We, and, and, and talk about how much damage it caused to the family to lose a loved one to violence, right? And we'll pass pictures around and we'll sit there with that. We just sit there with it. Then one of the lifers will stand up and let's say he had 10 minutes. He'll spend his first half of his time, five minutes, talking about the person whose death he caused, the person he killed. And he'd say, you know, here's that person, here's the family that I destroyed by causing that person's death. You know, pass any pictures he had around. And he'd say, typically, you know, the person who caused that death, who killed that victim, that person rather, was a depraved individual. I'm gonna tell you, was a depraved individual. But let me tell you how I got to be that individual. And then very often, a shocking number of times, you'll hear that they were in a foster system. You know, you'll hear about their foster home and being three, four years of age, locked in car trunks for three and four hours at a time as discipline, right? Cigarette burns, molestation, right? And by the time you get to the end of that, you realize two things. One, that the distinction between victims and victimizers isn't so clear. That a lot of victimizers are themselves victims. That a lot of perpetrators are themselves victims, right? So that distinction becomes blurred, much more blurry than we like to acknowledge. And then number two, we recognize that hurt people hurt people. You know, that deep recognition that hurt people hurt people helps us to dull the sharp edge of retribution when we're looking at members of our community who have done even violent acts. And so that's another example of how I would try to explain something that's very tough. You know, when you're talking about shifting from retribution, retaliation, revenge toward a new moral compass rooted in restoration, redemption, and rehabilitation, that can sound mighty vague unless you can give some concrete and specific examples of how it works, of mothers of murder victims showing you how it works, right? And then I think it, it becomes more under, you know, a, a lot more, um, uh, uh, it becomes a lot more intelligible to more people. It's like, it's like a conversation about empathy, you know, it's like, I don't know about you all, but like every time, like there'll be there'll be like an article that'll come out where it'll say, "Okay, actually no, this there's one from this past summer. There was a man who uh who took an AK-47 and shot up a store, and then shot up shot at some police officers, and they arrested him." And I was just like thinking to myself, and oh, in the in the article they were saying like he's not dealing with the pandemic very well, and it's like yo, I also am not dealing with the pandemic very well but you don't see me shooting up stores you don't see me shooting up any like you know i'm not shooting at the cops if that was me i would have died they would have killed me 
And I'm just sitting here like, yo, like that, why don't black people ever get that type of empathy? You know what I'm saying? But it's like, if we're going to talk about empathy, we have to give empathy for like everybody. And that's really, really hard. Cause just like you were saying, people don't usually give black people any type of empathy. Um, none, none. And, and we have to be careful that we don't say we want white people to be treated like black people. Rather, we want black people to be treated like white people. Too often we say, you're, okay, you're treating the two groups unequally. But that doesn't mean we want you to start treating, we want you to ratchet up the punishment so that you're tr being punitive toward everybody like you are toward black people. We want you rather to ratchet down the punishment so that you're treating black people like white people with whom you do empathize, right? So sometimes, you know, we, we, we say we just want equality, but we don't think about which direction we want equality to go in, toward more punitiveness or toward less punitiveness. And we have to be clear about that. You know, it's, it's one of those, again, areas that is, uh, it's hard to sometimes say, for example, in um, D.C., when the, when the people were overrunning D.C., right, the insurrection four weeks ago, whatever it was, all right? Um, a lot of people noted rightly that if those had been Black folk or Black Lives Matter allies, there would have been a whole lot of body bags and toe tags, right? There would have been a whole lot, Everywhere. right? Um, but instead, instead, there was not, you know, um, they did not open fire on the crowd. And I think they should not have. Why kill a whole lot of people in that case? Really, right? right? I mean, they could have had a bloody massacre and you said, oh, you better never do that. But what would that, you're, you're, you're getting their identities anyway. You're going to prosecute them anyway, right? So what would that really have accomplished? So rather than saying they should have shot all of those white insurrectionists just like they would have shot black insurrectionists, we should, or black protesters rather, right? We should be saying, no, they should not be shooting. If those were Black Lives Matter folk, they should, they should have treated them just like those white folks, right? Showing them the same empathy, not ratchet up, but ratchet down, right? Our, 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 the expected response that we want from state actors like the police. And it's hard sometimes to look for things, look at things through that, those lenses of consistency. But it's important for us to do that. You know, another, let me give you another example. I'm gonna give you a lot of examples of the controversial that, you know, some of your listeners are, might not even wanna hear coming from a progressive because, you know, a lot of times you, a, a progressive standpoint um, doesn't always balance this other, this, this other factor in. Like, for example, we have been, we, we've routine, I've heard a lot of people on the left routinely calling the people who were going through DC into the, you know, the buildings, et cetera, terrorists, right? Um, yeah, you can call them terrorists, but, you know, you could have called the people over the summer. There were people calling the, the protesters over the summer terrorists. And over the summer, I said, don't call them terrorists. That, that's ridiculous. You know, you, even if they're committing vandalism, even if there's some looting going on, that's not terrorism right? Because it isn't. That terrorism should be a special term of art, right? And, and you don't want it used too freely. Once you start letting it get thrown around, you know who's it's going to get thrown around the most on? Black folk, 
right? So once you start letting them use, you know, terrorists, you know, against these white folks initially, you know who is going to wind up being turned on, you know? So that is what, you know, it's that perspective, always thinking about how the other side might use whatever tactic you're advocating for now against black folk, not only against black folk enemy or enemies or against the enemies of inclusion, diversity and equity, against the enemies of equality, they'll often also use it against black dissenters and dissidents and protesters and activists, right? And you don't wanna give them that power. You don't wanna give them that legitimacy. You know, I'll give you um, one more kind of uh, a quick example, I guess, along those same lines, when people talk about taking people off Twitter. Oh, it's good they took Trump off Twitter and other people off Twitter. Well, you know who, I worry about giving white oligarchs the power to decide what messages can and can't go through these social platforms, right? Without Twitter, Black Lives Matter would have been a very different movement. Black Twitter, you know, and social media in general, but I remember especially Black Twitter, was the, was the fuel of a lot of Black Lives Matter stuff going on in 2014, yeah. 15, 16. Imagine some oligarchs at Facebook and Twitter and some other places sitting back and saying, hey, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about, you know, uh, um, um, fight the power. Those sound like fighting words. Wait a minute, those are words of violence, fight the power. We need to shut down Armour and Melina Abdullah and Patrice Cullors. You know, we need to remove them from our platform it would have been devastating to the movement, right? Uh, so we need to, you know, and they could always say, oh, well, you can go get your own platform. You don't have to go through Twitter, start your own thing. Well, when they tried to do Parler. that with um, Parler, yeah. yeah, you see when they tried to do that with Parler, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. So so that's what I'm saying. We got to, you know, I'm not a free speecher because I, 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 I trust Nazis. I don't trust Nazis. I just don't trust the powers that be to leave black dissidents and dissenters alone and not come treating us and not come at us, come for us as black identity extremists and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. No, I, I definitely got to uh, agree with that sentiment a little bit because especially since like they, they were very slow moving to do anything about the things that uh, Donald Trump was doing and saying on Twitter, like again, it was a, a crazy summer when he he tweeted the words when the looting starts the shooting starts like i feel like if anything there was a, a reason to like remove him from a platform it would have been that but they didn't even do it then you know they waited until like 2 weeks before he got fired <laughs> i just feel like in terms of the media and all this stuff i mean I feel like it's always of the moment, right? Like the media in the beginning of Trump's presidency, they created a lot of um, hype and all these different things. And then now, right, it's not conducive to the narrative and to what is quote unquote popular at the moment. So now, oh, let's shut him down. But you also fueled this man in the beginning as well. And right, so now, and to your point, right, when it's not convenient anymore or of the moment or popular of Black Lives Matter movement, then what is that going to look like? Right. So, yeah, I think you have a really great point with that. Um, in terms of rehabilitation, and I'm just interested, um, I guess, your thoughts, but with Pell reinstatement for individuals who are incarcerated, 
um, what that means to you, or also how do we create more equity and enrollment for colleges and universities? Yeah, so let's start with PAL um, of support for um, people in prison. It never should have been taken out. Mm -hmm. You know who took it out? A Democrat, Bill Clinton, right? This is why racialized mass incarceration has been bipartisan, right? Uh, We have two people in the Democratic Party now, Biden and, and, and Kamala Harris, who have some pretty bad criminal justice records when it comes to law and order and cracking down on black people, especially. Um, in the name of law and order. Uh, so the Pell, stuff, Pell Grants never should have been taken out of prisons in the first place. If you, care, if you care at all about rehabilitation, then that is one of the major tools in your toolbox. Why would you throw it out? Because people stopped caring about rehabilitation. That's why they started treating people as just disproportionately black people as just toxic human waste to be dumped in warehouse somewhere and forgotten. Uh, and, and like I said, once again, it was bipartisan. That was Bill Clinton and Joe Biden and, 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 and all of them. Um, and how do we get um, more representation in the universities and colleges? Um, there's got to be aggressive outreach by university and colleges into these communities that are underrepresented. And they, you know, and then once they bring members from these underrepresented communities, aggressively seek them out um, on the campus. They have to provide adequate support to make sure they retain the people who are recruited from, uh, from these uh, socially marginalized groups. Uh, sometimes you, you capture a lot of people from those groups through first-gen programs, but not only first-generation programs. You know, there are a lot of programs that universities have constructed for students who are the first generation, the first people in their family, the first generation in their family to go to college or graduate school or, or right, but especially college, you typically hear it. Um, and those programs are great and necessary and, um, and, and, and serve a valuable purpose, but you know, you can be a second gen or third generation a uh, black Latinx student, student from an LGBTQ community, any other number of other communities, um, and still face challenges because of your membership in that socially marginalized community, right? Uh, and you, the, you know, walking across campus and being stereotyped and profiled and all the rest, they don't ask if you're, you, they don't, they don't, they don't spare you th- those indignities if you're second and third generation and save them only for the first generation from your group, right? It falls on all generations alike, like rain, just as indifferent as rain, a lot of those those stereotypes. So um, keeping folks there, once you get them there and on the campus with, you know, real support, real programs of support. Um, But above all, it's just commitment. We have to make the commitment as 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 a nation, as a state, and as a city and then as, a, as, a, as each institution, you know, private institutions like USC, public ones like UCLA have to fight, you know, um, fight hard for inclusion, diversity, and equity. Yeah, and I feel like there needs to be a transparency too with marginalized students in terms of career trajectory and what their education will mean afterwards in terms of, I mean, 
economic growth as well is not everything, but it does help in terms of equity um, and our place in society. So I feel like there has to be that like mentorship type of program, but there also has to be a transparency as well of this degree equals this or this field um, can provide X, Y, and Z as well. I feel like we have to be yeah, transparent and honest, um, because I think sometimes there's a lot of uh, things aren't said and romanticized, and it's yep. on like the benefit of the university versus the benefit of the student. And then yep. thinking about that student being marginalized on top of it, it creates um, possibly some more barriers than you expected after graduation. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you that, you know, not, not a lot of students don't have the luxury of the old model of liberal arts education. There's an old model of liberal arts education. The idea was you just go and you get, you know, you it, it doesn't matter what you major in. You know, you can major in visual environmental studies, something very kind of or, you know, 13th century literature and you know, ancient, you know, whatever, whatever. And that's fine because you, we, we want you to be a, a learned person, cultivate certain, you know, um, instincts when it comes to reading and scholarship and all that sort of, which is all great, all great. I'm not gonna, ever gonna take anything away from that, right? Uh, and, but that pre, it, it presupposes a certain privilege, Right, that you're coming from a family of privilege, that you can go and kind of go back to a family of privilege, that you can you you know you have the luxury of you know not necessarily having to have a clear career path, you know, uh, because you're 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 going to land all right on. And I, I wish that more students could could have that luxury because it is great to be able to think that freely, right? But it's not realistic for many of for many of us coming from you know first generation students and coming from marginalized communities. We really do um, need to, we're going into debt a lot of times for these degrees. We need to pay off real debt. It's me. We, and, yes. Debt. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Real debt. There have to be some real careers and we need to get those careers going pretty soon, not, you know, 20 years out. You know, like some people say, I didn't really, I didn't hit my stride till I was 35. Yeah, must be nice. <laughs> you know, but we don't have the luxury to wait to 35 to hit our stride, unfortunately, you know, and that, and I, I, I regret saying that, you know, because I wish more of us had a, that kind of middle class, you know, um, found um, material condition to be able to have, you know, more uh, of our children, like my, my, my kids, you know, um, were able to take more risks because they knew they could fall back on a middle class kind of, you know, home family, you know, uh, 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 situation. Um, so many don't have that. And, and so, yeah, we have to be, re we have to be realistic in, in higher education and help guide our students to jobs that are going to be fulfilling and compensate them enough to take care of their basic obligations like their loans and other things that they may be aspiring to. Um, sometimes I, I, I forget how much like the ability to choose is privilege, you know, 
Um, but it's like, it's definitely a reminder. Like not everybody has the ability to, to like, well, I can think through my options. Like not everybody has options. So like, like use them well, if mm -mm. you have them. Um, mm -mm. I'll tell one? you. Oh, go ahead. You go ahead, please. Oh, um, and I was also thinking like something you had said before, like um, how much of like the onus of, of, of uh, building equity within like all these institutions is on the institutions, you know? Um, yeah. And like, I, I, I don't know. I like all, all my white friends know this. Like I kind I say this a lot to them. Like, I'm not going to fix racism. White people have to fix racism. Okay. So like the, the onus on to fix any of this is on like the people who have the power and the people who have like, like institutions who have the power to do so um, until the institutions recognize that like, so much of this is self-harm like we aren't going to get anywhere with it so um yes the al our allies are our non-black allies our allies who are in the um latinx community the um white community the asian community are non-black allies um as you're saying really have to show up now and, and say that it is on us to root out anti-blackness because there's anti-blackness in the Latinx community. You're plenty of it, right? Absolutely. I have lots of friends and, you know, back East and um, uh, who I grew up with who will tell you, talk to you about, you know, uh, there, there's, there's anti-blackness in the black community. Think about how much colorism there is yes. in the black community. You know, yes. good here, bad here, good features, bad features. Right. So all communities have, are, have, can be guilty of anti-blackness. Right. And, and I have to be on guard against anti-blackness um, and rooted out of their experiences. And 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 um, and so I leap to agree with you on all of, on all of that. I think you're making another point I wanted to go off on, too. What, what, what else were you saying, my brother? Um, I said yeah. like, the ability to choose. Oh, the ability to choose. Yeah, I like that. You know. Yeah, not, you know, one, one thing that you see when you walk here in LA where we happen to be is when it comes to choice, how much choice people have. Walk through Skid Row in downtown LA, which is the largest concentration of houseless folk in America, right down there in Sixth Street in, in, in the Nickel in Skid Row, downtown LA, right? And so it is, for that reason, the fiercest expression of structural violence in America is Skid Row, right there, right? And when you walk through Skid Row, what do you see when you look to your left and right? You don't see 70, 75% well, of the faces you see are not people of color faces. 75% of the faces you see are black faces, right? Black faces are at the bottom of the well in America. And that, once you get that recognition and then look at, like I do in my new book, look at some of the empirical psychology, the empirical psychological literature, you start to see what we're really up against. Because when you put a black face on a social crisis, Americans are more indifferent to their suffering and show less willingness to help and intervene on their behalf. And they, 
and that is for site reasons that I talk about in my new book that have to go that have to do with their their unconscious, their cognitive unconscious. I have all of these studies uh, that I talk about in the book that have to do with mere neurons in our brain, what they call the mere neuron system. Anybody who, who's taken psychology knows what I'm talking about. Who's uh, the mere neurons in your brain are the neurons that fire when you're looking at somebody else do something. So let's say you're a white person and you're looking at another white person drink a cup of water, right? You see them raise the, the glass up to their lips, bend their elbow, tip it, sip it, and put it back down, right? You as the observer in your brain simulate what you see. You don't actually lift your own elbow, lift your, a cup up and turn it to your lips. But in your brain, you do. Your mirror neurons reflect or simulate what you see, right? And so those mirror neurons are the basic building blocks of empathy and sympathy, those mirror neurons, right? Because they make it possible for you to connect with, put yourself in somebody else's shoes that you're observing, all right, or thinking about. But here's what they found. Oh, my God. That when you, when they put a white person as an observer who was observing a black person drink a cup of water, their mirror neurons didn't fire. Their, they didn't simulate what they saw when they were looking at somebody black. And so those basic building blocks of sympathy and empathy just did not activate. And you can see all this with fMRIs, these brain imaging studies now, where you, know, you can say, here's your brain and here's your brain on race. And we can actually look at it with, our, with, these, with these brain imaging right, right, um, technology, right? And so what that means, that, that explains so much. Because what that means is that there's just an empathy deficit in white America toward the suffering of black America. Whenever, think about Hurricane Katrina and the Ninth Ward. When Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and the Ninth Ward, if you go back, Google, you'll see pictures of black folks standing on rooftops in the Ninth Ward with literally, not figuratively, literally water up to their necks, right? One day goes by, two days go by. They're still on the rooftops, water up to their necks. Three days go by. Four days in, you, they I remember pictures of Sean Penn rowing up there in a rowboat handing out fresh water because FEMA still couldn't get its act together. The federal emergency uh, uh, response folk couldn't get their act together four days in, right? Uh, compare the response to those black lives that didn't matter to those responders to the response after 9-11 when those planes ran into those buildings in New York. There was a panic of empathy for those victims. People just got it done. They didn't let any bureaucratic impediments get in the way, any red tape. They just said, hey, you know, it's like seeing your family in a building burning house. You don't think about it. You just feel a panic of empathy, right? You just help. Well, they don't, didn't feel that panic of empathy for those black bodies in the Ninth Ward because there's an empathy deficit when it comes to black folk in distress in America. And what you have down in Skid Row is what you had in the Ninth Ward only it's not only four days, it's every day. It's all week, all month, all year, year in and year out. 
you have whole families, 75% of them black, water up to their neck, kids, every, everything. And we don't give a damn about them because they're black faces. And, we're, we're, and as a society, we have an empathy deficit form. Same demographics you see in prisons, disproportionately black, disproportionately black victims of COVID-19, any crisis situation that has a disproportionately black face in the public imagination and public perception is not going to get the same response it would get if that were a non-black group of people in distress. And that's just reality. Makes me think about um, Flint, Michigan and yeah. lack of clean water because it's, it's been years now. That's um, another example, another example, a great example. You know, those black lives don't matter. Not, you know, a lot of white, it's not the white people, a lot of white people and non-black people generally just say to themselves, oh, I don't like black people. That's why I'm not going to help them while they're in distress or in a crisis. No, it's much subtler than that. It's your mere neurons aren't firing. So it's not that you don't care, it's that you don't care enough. You don't care very much. You don't have that panic of empathy that you'd have for somebody who you considered one of your own, one of us, rather than one of them. You know, that's where you see it rearing its head. And it explains so much of racial justice or injustice and oppression in America. Bars. Lots of bars in there. I don't know. Jeez. I mean, it goes in terms of what our podcast is called implicitly awkward, implicit bias. But I had, I guess, I want to say I didn't have any idea, but I didn't know that it went that deep in terms of actual scientific studies and showing mirror neurons not firing off and a lack of empathy. Um, so cultivating that empathy and this them versus us mentality and trying to somehow find a connection or squash that. I mean, again, I go back to Marcus's point of, I, it's the people in power too. They need to do the work in order to find that empathy, to do the work to dismantle systemic oppression. This is a very complicated issue. And again, it's like, how do we it, make it, it accessible? <laughs> well, here, here, here's one way. Here's one thing that may come out of these studies, right? because there may be one glimmer of hope. The glimmer of hope is this, that we, they call it in-group empathy bias or in-group love. If you see the person that you're observing as a member of your in-group, mm. you're gonna, you're gonna have, your mirror neurons are going to fire. Mm. It's out-group members that you don't have, the mirror neurons don't fire for, that you don't have the empathy for. So if you can start to define people who used to be out-group members as in-group members. You know, like when I was playing basketball in high school, I played at Lower Marion High School, oh, Kobe Bryant's old high school. I had the scoring record before he came along, 23 a game my senior year. He shattered that, so I can't even bring it up now. It's, it's, it, it pales by comparison uh, so much. But what, what I remember from being on that team is, for us as members of that team, that was the us. You know, the us and them, part of the us, even though we, you know, there were, we had um, different races, you know, different backgrounds on the team. There was an, uh, uh, an us-ness that came about from our, our sharing that 
kind of that common enterprise and viewing one another as in it together, you know, uh, that can help, you know, so how do you extend the boundaries of us? You know, I, I think maybe you can get, you can cut some ice with something like we're all Trojans, you know, the us is Trojans, for example. And now within that, let's work on this. I think something like that, developing, you know, communities, forging communities, working hard to forge communities of us, you know, to take the, the splits and heal them and work towards some kind of usness is, is, is a goal, but it's going to take a lot of work. Well, Dr. Armour, before we wrap, um, Alexia and I play a game on here called uh, Let Me Put You On. Uh, basically, anything that like, and if it's like music, a movie, or like a show that like you watch and you're like, yo, other people need to see this. Like, um, so I got to put y'all on. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah dropped mm -hmm. last night and I stayed up past midnight to watch it. And like, I'm a history guy. So like, you know, I, I loved every bit of that movie, but it's it's just so, so heavy. And it was crazy because like my my roommate who I watched it with, she had never heard of ha Fred Hampton. So like, it was like crazy to watch her, like recognize all the things that happened with that tragic story, honestly. Um, so it's, it's so good. It's so, so good. So if y'all have HBO Max, shout out to USC, because that's how I watched it. <laughs> you know, watch that thing hey, when you get hey. it out when the chance, man. Hey, you know what's so funny is I've been following that movie for a while now. Um, and, you know, was brought in as a consultant um, and, and a oh. consultant uh, capacity. And, you know, I love the flick. It is like, whoa, it, it really lays it out. Um, and it is, you know, it's a story that resonates with today. You know, the story of Fred Hampton, COINTELPRO, the FBI, you know, taking out black leaders uh, who were saying things that were too much threatening to the status quo. And, and that none of that's a conspiracy theory. All that's fact. You know, and so, yeah, you know, um, Judas and the Black Messiah is the real deal. It, it you know, it, 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 they really um, don't pull any punches, um, don't glorify law enforcement, but re recognize that law enforcement really torpedoed much of the Black movement, you know, intentionally and in, in a lot of different ways. And so, yeah, I, I love that, that, that you are, are, are feeling that way about uh, 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 Judas and the Black Messiah. Is there a movie or like a TV show or an album that you're really rocking with lately? Oh man, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, being stuck at home with COVID for uh, 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 extended periods and made me go back and look at some TV series that um, I hadn't looked at and I find very interesting in, in light of the work I'm doing about blame and punishment and coming, with alter, coming up with alternative moral frameworks, moving away from retribution, retaliation, revenge, and toward one that humanizes even people that we demonize, monsterize, or otherwise niggerize, right? As I say in my book. And so I started looking at, at TV for scripts that weren't looking for the black hat, white hat, the good guy, bad guy binary, you know, that a lot of people buy into 
and make the retributive urge, you know, more, so much stronger and the retributive approach so much stronger. So I've, I've, I enjoyed checking out some um, and getting through some series like Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, um, Peaky Blinders, and The Americans. All of those were, you know, cases in which you're looking at um, the narratives, not from law enforcement's perspective, but from the perspective of moral ambiguity, you know, more, mm -hmm. there's a lot more mm -hmm. moral complexity. You know, it's not like the law and order shows, you know, law and order, whatever it might be, you know, which dominate the airways, by the way. When you throw on yeah. CIS, law and order, and all the various cop SVU. shows. Yeah. Yes, all the cop shows, man, there's a, they're, they're like, they're, I, I, when they were having marches in the street over the summer, I looked at the television offering, just like in the middle of July, I looked at the television menu and in the middle of those marches, I saw on one day, they had like 22 different cop shows on 17 different TV stations, you know, that you could find or cable stations, you mm -hmm. know, going around because that's how popular cop shows, cop stories are. We have for 30, 40 years now, when we turn on the TV, it's been from the cop's perspective. The protagonists have been yeah. cops. I mean, even people like, you know, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, you know, they, 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 mm -hmm. with, with bad guys, whatever, whatever that, whatever bad that boys, show yeah. was, the movie, bad boys. Yeah, you know, cop, cop, cop. You know, Denzel Washington's a cop. Everybody's a cop. You know, um, I'm getting ready to, to talk to Ice-T Tuesday. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, he's, he did a lot of great um, 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 art early on, critical of cops, but he spent the last 20 years playing a cop on mm -hmm. um, on um, SVU, uh, right? Law and Order SVU, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it, it is it is really interesting for me to think about some TV shows that challenge that perspective a little. And so I've looked for those. Uh, naturally, I like all the music that challenges that perspective too. Therefore, so I uh, in my writing, I'm drawn to gangster rap and my Mount Rushmore. Of, of rap artists would have to be Pac, Nas, Cube, and Hove. That's just me, but you know, Pac, Nas, Cube, Hove, if I could throw in a group, it would be Public Enemy, but they weren't quite as prolific as those other guys. And they, you know, the, uh, and, and Public Enemy, unlike the other guys, isn't bringing the so-called black criminal perspective to bear, right? The, uh, all, all the people I mentioned, well, at least Pac, Nas, and Hove are saying I was a black criminal. So let me give you the perspective, my perspective of the world, uh, you know, as a black criminal, somebody that Chris Rock calls a nigga, uh, you know, when he says, I love black people, but I hate niggas. Well, let me give you my so-called nigga perspective. Let me penetrate pop culture and drop some multi-platinum albums with my so-called nigga perspective. So those are, those are the hip hop uh, folks I like. And then movies, man, you know, you know, Wakanda forever, you know, whatever. Uh, Kugler, Kugler, I ran, Kugler got, ran into my student when he was a student at SC, Kugler ran into another one of my students, um, Ephraim Walker, who was a law student at the time. They met upstairs in 2008. We got together for Obama's inauguration. And, uh, and, and, and Ryan Kugler and Ephraim Walker went from there to work, um, work together on Fruitvale mm. Station. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it, it went from there. So SC has been holding it down for a while, you know, in this space. For sure. That's facts.
I would say for me, um, I watched Cutthroat City, which is about Hurricane Katrina. I enjoyed mm. it. Um, I saw some I mixed seen reviews. It. I got to check it out. Yeah, no, it's good. I, I really enjoyed it. And also, I enjoyed Malcolm and Marie. I know that there's some back and forth about that, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was beautiful. The music was amazing. I thought the acting was great. Yes, we could have refined the script, but I enjoyed it. So <laughs> I'm going to put that out there. But again, thank you so much. Um, this conversation was really fruitful. Um, yeah. And that was Implicitly Awkward. <laughs>